a notable person, thing, or event. So we're seeing the advent of the kingdom of heaven in the book of Matthew. Something new, something that we desperately need and desire. Something that will reshape our life. So we're going to be in the first few chapters, and uh, this week we're looking at the idea of hope. I mean, our Advent candle was hope, so today is hope for the hopeless because the first few verses of Matthew are all about hope. But not just a generic hope, but hope for the hopeless. Hope for the hopeless. That's where we're going today. Now, as you're going to see when we dive into the scriptures, what we're about to read is a genealogy. Last week, we read... A very difficult passage, one of the hardest passages in all of Scripture to teach, where we had bears coming out of the woods. And this week, we're doing a genealogy, and you're like, what has gotten into you, Pastor Mark? You have two weeks in a row of weird passages. But we're going to do it. I want to be faithful to the text. So I'm going to show you that this passage is actually far more exciting than first glance. But will you read with me? And uh, stand, if you are able, as we read the Word of God. We are in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez by Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon. And Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon, by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. And Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. And Abijah, the father of Asaph. And Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram. And Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Akim, and Akim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations for Abraham to whoop, excuse me. So all the generations from Abraham to David were fourteen generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, fourteen generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, fourteen generations. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray. Father, help us to listen to what you have to say today. May we have soft hearts, open ears, and may I have clarity of speech. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. You're like, okay, what? <laughs> we read another weird passage where we have a genealogy. What is going on here? Now, I want to brag on my wife a little bit. She is an aspiring writer, and she uh, enters into writing competitions all the time. And 
the most common type of writing competition that she enters into is a writing competition where you have to submit your first 5, 10, 15 pages, the beginning of the book. She submits that, and she gets judged on that. They judge your whole book on whether or not they want to see the rest of your book, on whether you're going to win the competition on the beginning. And she has to start her book in an exciting manner. She's got to grab your attention and say, come read this book. So those opening pages are incredibly important. She's also gotten very far in these competitions. She's finaled in several of them. So she is, she's, she's very good. So she hates me saying that, but she is uh, pretty, pretty good. Now, that le- leaves us with the question, did Matthew get the message on how you were supposed to start a book? I mean, that, I don't know about you, but I read that and I got a little bored. You know, I'm reading these names and I'm like, they're standing right now in our congregation. Let's see, uh, I don't want to read too fast, but I want to read maybe a little faster than normal as I get through these names. It's not the most riveting thing to us. But I think Matthew is actually giving us something quite interesting, something scandalous even, something that would flip expectations on their heads, something that when we really dive into it is quite profound. Just here in these, this opening genealogy, it's scandalous and head-turning. But you've got to know what's going on. You've got to know the backstory. Okay, highest grossing film of all time, Technically, it's Avatar, but they kind of cheated because they reopened Avatar in theaters a few months ago to retake the top spot and to kind of drive up hope for the new Avatar movie that's coming out. But, you know, in my book, the real highest grossing film of all time is Avengers Endgame. It's got like $2.7 billion. It's like an absurd amount of money. Now, Avengers Endgame is the 22nd film in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. If you have seen no... Marvel movies at all, and you go and watch Avengers Endgame, you're going to be like, why is this film the highest grossing film of all time? Who are these people and what in the world is going on? First, it's a direct sequel to Avengers Infinity War, but it's also, there's 21 films before it that give tremendous backstory. But everybody who's seen those films and has watched Avengers Endgame is like, oh my goodness, this film's amazing, it's so exciting. But I guarantee you, you would be lost if you had seen none of those films beforehand. So here, we need to know, what's the backstory? What's the backstory that Matthew is assuming you have read? Well, one, it's the whole Old Testament, but two, in particular, there's some promises that happen in the prophets. There's really two kind of big kind of cultural touch points that Matthew is honing in on two big promises. The first one is that there will come a Davidic king. There will be a king from the line of David who is going to come and rule his people. That is the first kind of cultural touch point that's big. We kind of get that. Oh yeah, he's the promised son of David, but it's bigger than we think. The second thing is that this king is going to triumph over the enemies of the people of God, but also bring the people of God back home and usher in a new age. So this king wasn't just going to be a king. He was going to bring his people home and begin something new. So Matthew is assuming that we have that context. So let's look at those two promises just a bit. First, this Davidic king. Because each promise, there's a problem. 
The first promise with the Davidic king, we see it given in 2 Samuel 7. God makes a promise to David. He says, there is going to be a son of yours who sits on your throne forever, and there will be peace during his rule. Now Solomon is a kind of first image of this, and there's peace during his reign, but ultimately his life is pointing to something greater, this future greater king that was going to come. Now the problem is that the Davidic dynasty ends about 400 years or so after God gives this promise to David. It basically ends in 586 when Babylon comes and destroys the people of God and takes them, takes Judah off into exile. So the Davidic dynasty ends. Not only that, but at this point, it's been a thousand years. So when Jesus arrives on the scene, it's been basically a thousand years since God gave that promise to David. So we had a four, we've had 400 years when you had Davidic kings, and none of them proved to be this wonderful Davidic king. And now we've had another 586 plus years of no Davidic king at all. Almost a thousand years of people waiting for a king. Now, I've talked about Marvel, so I've got to talk about Star Wars too. Big Star Wars fan. It's been a while since I made a Star Wars reference, so you're welcome. Star Wars, love it. So Disney bought Star Wars back in 2012, right after our oldest Kylo was born. I had to wait like three whole years for Disney to make that new Star Wars movie, The Force Awakens. I was so excited. I mean, all of 2015, you had like these, uh, these trailers and teasers that kept coming out. I mean, I would watch those things again and again. I'd watch all the YouTube videos breaking down. Here's all the things we see in the trailer. Here's what's going to come. I mean, I ate it up for a year. I loved it. I had such anticipation going into that movie. And I loved it, by the way. I loved, I loved The Force Awakens. I wanted to cheer when it was over. But that was like three years. Three years of anticipation for like a highlight in my life. You know, yeah, that's pretty sad. But anyways, it was, it was a big deal. We have a thousand years of waiting for this king that's going to come for God's people. A thousand years. I don't think any of us can imagine waiting a thousand years, having a collective understanding of like a thousand years that we're waiting for this. I mean, we live in a nation that's what, 250 years old, give or take a few years? We have no idea what it's like to wait for a thousand So, that's the first promise, the Davidic king. The second promise is that this king would triumph over the enemies of God and bring those people home and into a new age. Throughout the prophets, you know that portion of your Bible that's kind of looks brand new like the day you bought your Bible? Yeah, that part. Throughout the prophets, you keep seeing that God's kind of warning his people, hey, change, repent, or you're going to be exiled. But he says, you know, once you're exiled, there will come a day when I bring you back. When I bring you back. I'm going to drop a fancy word on you, okay? The word is eschatological. Eschatological just means kind of an end times or new age, this, this future reality. Eschatological, okay? All the prophets keep pointing at this glorious eschatological restoration of the people of God. A glorious end times, new age, restoration of the people of God. So that's the second promise, that there would be this this new age where the people would come back from exile and it would be headed by this Davidic king. So those two things are linked together. Now here's the problem. So that's the promise, but the problem is 
the people do return from exile in Babylon in 538 B.C. But it was not a glorious return. It was not what we would call, we would call a glorious eschatological restoration. It was just kind of a return, an eh return, where the Davidic king is still nowhere to be found. They don't have a king at all. And we see there are three prophets that happen after the exile. They are Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. They're the last three books of the Old Testament. And those three prophets all still speak of a new age to come. So this glorious return from exile has not happened. And we'll actually see that in the text that we uh, read from, or that we've already read in Matthew. I'll kind of highlight why it's there. But let's read just one of these promises in Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9 and 10 says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. Verse 10, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So we see again this picture of the king ruling his people in peace, but not just his people, but the nations. Okay, so our people, people of God, have been waiting for a thousand years for a Davidic king, and they've been waiting for 500 years, basically, for this return from exile. It's like, does God keep his promises? Because that's a long time to wait. God, when are you going to show up? Now, in our text today, we finally see God answering these promises, bringing these promises to bear. And I spent a lot of time going through this background because we have to get that before we can understand just how big of a deal Matthew is making the arrival of Jesus. And in this passage in Matthew, there's basically two things. You've got two big points on your outline. I know it looks intimidating because there's subpoints, but we'll move through them pretty quick. There's two big things that we learn about God's kingdom and who it belongs to in today's passage. Two big things that Matthew's teaching. So, the first one is this. The arrival of Jesus Christ brings hope, hope, to those looking for their forever home. I'll read that again. The arrival of Jesus Christ brings hope to those looking for their forever home. Their forever home. Not just something good, not just a new place, not just a return from exile, but their forever home this glorious eschatological restoration. Now, I want to hone in on verses 1 and 17 because they are really framing for us what this genealogy is all about. Starting in verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. That yawn. The book of the genealogy? What? Come on, Matthew! Matthew, what he does here, actually with these opening words, the book of genealogy, that's referencing Genesis. That phrase pops up in Genesis several times when new sections of Genesis are introduced. So Matthew is saying, something new is here. You know, back in Genesis, when God was making everything, when he was making a people for himself, Abraham was on the scene, Matthew is saying, yes, something new, just like then, is here. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. It's a big deal. And then there's kind of three emphases within this framework. There's three. 
One, you have the son of David. Two, the son of Abraham. And then in the bottom, down in verse 17, we see that he links all of these things and emphasizes the deportation to Babylon. So let's look at kind of each one, Abraham, David, and the uh, deportation to Babylon. So starting with Abraham, Genesis 12, 1 to 3, Abraham calls, or God calls Abraham and says, I'm going to make you into a great nation. You know, I'm going to give you this land, you're going to have all these descendants. But the promise culminates in the idea, he says, all of the nations will be blessed through you. All nations will be blessed through you. That curse that happens back in Genesis 3, he says it's starting to be reversed through this promise of Abraham that happens in Genesis 12. Genesis 1 to 11, or excuse me, 3 to 11 is like this downhill, terrible things happen. But Genesis 12, God all of a sudden says, Abraham, I'm going to fix that through you. All nations will be blessed through you. So that gives us our first kind of point 1A. Jesus brings hope because he is the one through whom all nations will be blessed. So this king that Matthew is referring to, by linking him to Abraham, he says this is not just the Jewish king. This has to do with that promise all the way back to Abraham. At the very beginning, all nations will be blessed through him. And all of the Bible and all of history points to this promised son of Abraham. All nations will be blessed. So this is a hopeful message. As we're reading, we're like, yes, the reverse of the curse is going to happen through this guy. But then Matthew goes on to David. David, he says he's the son of David. So we get this second kind of sub-point. Jesus brings hope because he is the promised king who will rule and bring peace. Jesus brings hope because he's the promised king who will rule and bring peace. And the genealogy bears this out. The genealogy, one, David stands in the very middle, but also you've noticed this kind of 14 generations thing. And the 14 generations seems kind of fake because Matthew purposefully leaves people out. There's people we know of in the line. They like don't pop up here, especially in the, from David to uh, Zerubbabel. It's missing people. It's like, Why? Matthew, can you not count? Also, in the last section, there's only 13 names. There's not even 14. Is Matthew lying? What's going on here? Well, there's something neat that's going on here. And that's, Matthew is making the point through, through the number 14. You see, in Hebrew, their numbers corresponded with letters. So the number four was a D, number six was a W, and D, again, was a four. The way you would spell David, again, they don't have vowels, so the way you spelled David was D-W-D. Those aren't the words of the Hebrew letters. I won't bore you with that. And this, you can go into numerology stuff and read too much into it, but here, Matthew is very much using numbers to say, this is David's name, because four plus six plus four equals 14. So here, Matthew is saying, yes, this is the king. This is that promised Davidic king. That one that God said was going to rule and bring peace in 2 Samuel 7. He's here. He's here. He is the just judge that we've been looking for. He is the one who brings security. He is the authority that we need. We all long for there to be somebody in our life that is over us and speaking truth to us and saying, this is right, this is wrong, follow me. We were not meant to be independent and completely autonomous. 
We were meant to be under the authority of God, and we long for that just, righteous king that's promised to God's people in 2 Samuel 7. And Matthew is saying, he is here. That is him. Imagine the anticipation of a child on Christmas. As you, they think about the presents that are coming under the tree. And here we have, when we see this, oh, oh my goodness, this is the anticipation. It will be far greater than anything we could imagine. This king is here. The judge we rightly need. Again, that brings hope. It brings hope. Now, I want to spend a little more time talking about this third point, exile. Because in the verse... There's no return from exile. Matthew doesn't mention it. He's like, we go from Abraham to David to over here, the deportation. But there's no, there's no like, hey, and they came back and we start a new section. No, he's kind of thematically saying, we're still in exile. The people of God, they were still in exile waiting for their king to come and rule. So Jesus brings hope because he is the promised king who will lead his people home from exile. Home from exile. Jesus brings hope because he is the promised king who will lead his people home from exile. And this is not just the people of Israel, but the whole world. The whole world. He offers something far better than a physical land, physical healing. He offers them and us a forever home, a place where we ultimately belong a complete overhaul of the system. We don't just need a new nation. We need a whole new way of thinking about life. We need new life entirely. We need to go from death to life. And Jesus is the king who brings that. He doesn't come and put a band-aid on it. He doesn't come and just create another theocracy like Israel was. He comes and creates something completely new. A nation not defined by political systems or by borders, but a new people who are new creations, whose love stretches across all sorts of divides, whose ethic is unlike anything the world has ever seen. This is the king that we have. He brings us something new. Now, why is this third point in particular important? Why is all of this important? What's going on here for us? Why is, this why is it important for this ge genealogy to bring us hope? Well, there, there's a theological concept I want to dive into called the already but not yet. The already but not yet. You see, Christ has come. He has already brought his kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, as Matthew talks about it. That's brought, been brought. He accomplished his work on the cross. It is finished. It is finalized. It cannot be thwarted. It cannot be changed. The word is, we would say it has been inaugurated, but it has not been consummated. It's, there's a not yet. We still live in this awkward in-between time where the vows have been said, but the wedding night has not happened. The inauguration, but not the consummation. We wait for our king to return and make all things new. The promise is there, but the fulfillment is not. We have the promise. Now, we are able to look back and see this promise. Israel looked forward to the promise. So we have a clearer picture. The kingdom has arrived, but we do still wait. You see, in a way, exile is still happening. 
yes, we have been brought home from exile, but no, we still live in a foreign land where there are foreign powers at work, where our king has not been fully revealed in his glory. So yes, we've been brought home from exile, but also not yet. We still live in exile. It's not just Israel, the people of God, living in exile. It's all of us, the people of God by faith. We all live in exile, in the land of sin. Babylon has not yet been dealt with. Revelation tells us that. And not, Babylon's not just a place. It is a way of working. It's the, the, the systems of the world. One day Christ will come and triumph over all of that. So we still live in this exile. So we still long for the hope of fulfillment. And it's important for us to see that we live in exile because if we begin to believe that somehow we are home, well, then we'll start to be a little more comfortable than we ought to be. We'll start seeing this world around us, our houses, even our biological families, the good things in life. We start seeing them as, yeah, this is, I'm just going to live it up here. I'm going to be as comfortable as I can. And Jesus, thanks for bringing me to heaven. But we're exiles. Yes, we seek the good of the city. When the exiles of, of Israel, of Judah, were living in Babylon, Jeremiah, one of the prophets, told them, seek the good of your city. So we don't check out from the world. We seek the good of the world that we live in, but we acknowledge that this world is not our home. And this passage in Matthew brings us the hope and says, yes, this world is not your home, but one day, yes, you will have a true home. That exile will end because this king has come. The exile will end because the king has come. We're under sin. We're not home. Yet the power of sin has been broken. And Jesus is preparing for us a home. So, the arrival of Jesus Christ brings hope to those looking for their forever home. Our forever home. Jesus Christ, he's the promised son of Abraham, he's the promised son of David, and he's the king who leads his people home from exile. What beautiful truth. Now, we touched on it when we were looking at these candles. It's one thing to talk about hope, but we need to dive into it. We need to really understand what hope is, because Advent is a season for hope. Advent, this arrival of a notable person, thing, or event. Right now, you know, you guys know, I, I love talking about IU basketball, but I won't... I won't bore you with the details, but it's the start of basketball season. So I have great hope that my team will win. We're supposed to be good this year. But that's a hope in the sense of, ah, I, I hope they win, maybe they'll win. That's not the kind of hope we have in Christ. The hope we have in Christ, there's two things about it. I don't have this on, on your notes, but there's two things. It's assured and it's expectant. It's assured in the sense that we look back. We think in the past and we look back to Christ's work on the cross. Our hope is placed in his work. It is finished. It is done. We look back. But it's also expectant in that there's that future component. So again, the already but not yet. We look forward to the future. So we live with assured hope. We look back. We think how Christ has paid for our sins on the cross. And I invite you, if you are here this morning and you don't know Christ as your Savior, if you have not placed your faith in Christ, what do I even mean by that? Well, being a Christian isn't about climbing the ladder of good things. Jesus didn't come to earth to say, hey, do good things and I'll like you and I'll save you from heaven. 
That's not what Christianity is about. Christianity is about us throwing ourselves at the feet of Jesus and saying, Lord, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. I don't deserve heaven, and there's nothing good enough I can do to get into your goodwill. I can't do those good things. God says, hey, I love you, and there is nothing you can do on your own to get rid of your sin or to appease my wrath. But he says, I love you so much that I'll pay it for you because you can't pay it yourself. I don't want you to spend eternity apart from me in hell, so I'm going to pay your way. And that's what Christ is doing on the cross. He didn't deserve to die. He lived a perfect life. And then he says, you either believe that I'm paying for you or you choose to pay on your own. He gives us basically an opportunity to respond. That's what it's about. Do we believe that Jesus is who he says he was and did what he said he did? Or do we just continue living our life? That's what it's all about. And that's what we look back to. That is our assured hope. And we look forward to the future with our expectant hope of our home to come. So when we live with this expectant hope, when we're faced with things like work seems too much, too much crazy going on, your kids are going wild. I mean, our house has been interesting over the past, both with sickness and, you know, you're at home over Thanksgiving. I think my eardrums are perhaps not working anymore. They're going crazy. Maybe you just feel lonely. Sometimes the holidays make you feel isolated. You're like, what am I doing with my life? Whatever it is, be reminded that we have an expectant hope, that these light momentary afflictions don't compare. They're preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. The trouble that you walk through in life does not define your reality. Instead, our assured hope and our expectant hope define our reality, our hope in Christ. Okay, now I've talked a lot about this hope. For our last point, it'll be pretty quick, but I, this, there's an exciting second thing that Matthew is pointing out in his genealogy. So we've looked at kind of Jesus' identity as king and how that brings hope. But also there's a question of, who's it for? Who's it for? And there's something really scandalous happening in this genealogy. So our second point is this. The arrival of Jesus Christ brings hope to the outsiders the outsiders, those who normally have no hope. Now, there are five women mentioned in this genealogy. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, and Mary. Bathsheba is mentioned through her husband Uriah. Most of them are Gentile outsiders or at least are associated with Gentile outsiders. Tamar was most likely a Canaanite. Ruth was a uh, Moabitess, that's even worse. Rahab was a Canaanite. And Bathsheba was married to a Hittite, a Gentile, an outsider, Uriah. And Bathsheba's not mentioned by name. Again, she's linked with her husband, so it's kind of showing her husband's outsiderness. But not only that, so they're outsiders, but they're also all, all five of them, associated with sexual immorality. Tamar dresses like and pretends to be a prostitute in order to get pregnant by Judah, because Judah and his family owed her children. Rahab was a prostitute. Ruth acts like a prostitute. And we don't like to hear that, because we're like, oh, but Ruth is innocent. And, but if you, the original story is actually quite scandalous. And it's intentional, because it's linking back to Tamar. If you want to talk about that sometime, come, come chat with me. Bathsheba commits adultery, and Mary is, to be found with, to be, is found to be with child before marriage. 
Now, obviously, Mary was innocent, but the stigma is certainly there. So we have this case of scandal with each one. Who wants this in their family line? You know, we're quick to point out the cool things in our genealogies. Now, especially, think, you can go and look back in your genealogy. It's like, oh yeah, I want to have all this sweet stuff in my genealogy. I don't want to talk about the weird stuff. I want to talk about my problematic ancestors. No thanks. You can even now see kind of where people change their names when you had problematic people in your past. Don't think you're going to find many people with the last name Hitler around anymore, even in Germany or Austria. It's true. I have a friend who said, you know what, my family comes from that region where Hitler came from. His name sounds a lot like Hitler, but it's not Hitler. It's like, huh, interesting, interesting. But with the arrival of Jesus, these scandals are brought in. They're brought in and they're celebrated. They're put on display. Jesus owns them in his genealogy. There's a pride in it. No other mothers get uh, mentioned. It's these that get mentioned. It tells us something about the kingdom of God, especially in the already portion, that it didn't come by force. It didn't come by great majesty. It came in brokenness, humility, and scandal. And that is how we need to turn to the Lord, in brokenness, humility, and scandal. Lord, I am guilty of scandal. Save me, a sinner. What binds all these women together, aside from brokenness and outsiders, outsiderness? It's their faith. Judah says that Tamar is more righteous than he. He's, she's actually commended in the end of the story. Rahab hides the Israelites, and is she saved? She's saved for her faith. Ruth is commended for her faith because she's committed to Naomi and to Yahweh. So even though she does something pretty scandalous with Boaz, you know, she goes and lays down at his feet in bed, and that's pretty, just as bad as you would think it would be, she too is commended. Uriah shows himself to be more righteous than David. And again, Bathsheba is linked to him. And Mary is the most righteous of all. She shows herself to be innocent through the whole ordeal. God is not ashamed of these people, and that's the God that we serve. And these things show us something really particular that's going to come out in Matthew. And that's the people of God are not who you expect. They're not defined by ethnicity but they're defined by those who have faith in Christ. And I can't wait to walk through Matthew with that lens on so that you can see. They're defined by faith in God. That's how the people of God are defined, past, present, and future. Faith in Christ. So point two again. The arrival of Jesus Christ brings hope to the outsiders, those who normally have no hope. Now there's two temptations with this. We think we're in a position where we don't need to humble ourselves, that somehow I'm not an outsider. And we need to see ourselves as outsiders. We need to have a posture that says, yeah, I'm like these outsider people. I'm someone that needs hope because I don't have any. Christianity, being with Jesus, is not for people who have their life together. It's for people who say, I don't. I don't. We also need to make the kingdom of God even within our doors. It's not about being mighty and powerful. Think about our elders. Do we want to have people that just, they look good on the outside? Or do we want to be a people that is a particular type of people? If you look at the qualifications for elders, it doesn't say you have to be able to run a business 
or be educated or do any of those things. It says you have to be a type of person that's godly and caring. Somebody with no education, somebody with a menial job could be a wonderful candidate to be an elder. But we, in our pride, we're like, oh, I, wanna, I want the fancy people to represent us. And God says, let's have the humble people. And by the way, I think our elders are fantastic by that. I'm not complaining about our elders. They are wonderful and godly men. Godly men. But I say, let's continue to look to godly men for our elders. We also need to receive that brokenness into our body. When people come in, do we say, hey, we love you, we welcome you. Yes, you may have a past like Tamar or Rahab or Bathsheba or Ruth, but come on in. Come on in. We love you. We are a broken people. Here's our summary statement for today. The king has come and is bringing us home, so have hope. The king has come and is bringing us home. I didn't want to just have a one past and another past, but he has come. He's bringing us home. That results in hope. We don't have to question whether he's arrived. Matthew tells us that. And we look to the future with an assurance because of what's happened in the past. We have the son of David, the son of Abraham, the king who's bringing us home from exile. So we get to have hope. Let me pray. Lord, we thank you that you do give us hope. Father, help us to be people who have a posture of hopelessness without you. May we not find hope in anything else except for you. Lord, we thank you that you are good to us. You are faithful. We love you. We pray all this in Jesus' name.